Katie's husband wanted to please his wife. I mean, why wouldn't he? They were still newlyweds at this time and having some of the best sex of their lives. He started fingering her, putting one finger in and then another. And then he went and twisted his whole hand around. Uh, and let me tell you, I flinched. <laughs> I jumped a bit. I was, it was very uncomfortable and really hurt. And he's like, there's something there. My fingers were on, like, there was something between my fingers. And that's when I was like, there's what? <laughs> I'm sorry. Excuse me, sir. <laughs> there's a what in my what? This is How I Fuck, and I'm your host, Natalie Rivera. When I was 23, I experienced possibly one of the best pleasures of my life. The guy I was dating fingered me in a way that has been hard to replicate ever since we broke up. It was painful, yes, but in a good kind of way. Really good kind of way, actually. Having someone pay attention to my vagina that way made me feel seen and in some weird way appreciated. So when I heard Katie's story about the first time she realized that something wasn't right with her vagina, I couldn't help but think to myself, oh, that fucking sucks. She clearly didn't experience that good kind of pain. Okay, so uh, my name's Katie and I was born with a uh, birth defect called uh, uterus didelphus. Uh, it might actually be a septate uterus. My doctors can't decide. But um, yeah, basically means that I was born with a uterus that did not fuse and separate properly. Okay, so quick biology lesson for you. The female reproductive system is pretty symmetrical. It has two ovaries and two fallopian tubes, all connected to one uterus, which is kind of like a fusion of both sides. Then there's the cervix, which is kind of like a door between the uterus and the vagina. So two fallopian tubes, two ovaries, one uterus, one cervix, one vagina. But things can go wrong sometimes when the uterus is developing. Maybe instead of one uterus, you're born with two, along with two cervixes. Or maybe you're born with two uteruses, but one cervix and one vagina. Then there are cases like Hades, where you're kind of born with two of everything. So I have two independent uteruses. Each one has its own fallopian tube and uh, ovary. Uh, the septum or the separation extends through the cervix. So I have two cervixes and it all extends all the way down the vaginal canal. So I also have two vaginas. Uterus didelphus is a rare anomaly that affects 0.3% of the total population. Not only are the causes of uterus didelphus unknown, but it's actually kind of difficult to identify in people who menstruate. For any of our listeners who might have trouble visualizing what your condition looks like, uh, can you maybe try describing it? I don't know if there's a metaphor that maybe you like to refer to. It is like a nasal septum. It's like the, the middle of your nose, except that it's, it's back about a, maybe a half an inch to an inch internally. So it's not visible from the exterior, which is why, of course, I didn't know. And none of my former partners know. And it took my husband three and a half years of dating to find it. Like we didn't, it took a long time for this to become an issue because it's a very thin vertical line of tissue. And if anything is inserted, it just shifts to the side. Like it goes against the, like the, the other wall. Like it just it gets pushed aside. So it's not, it's not visible and it's, it's not really tangible to anyone else. So like I can feel this, some discomfort of it moving, but like my husband would never notice that it was there until he did. Katie is from Nova Scotia, which is a Canadian province, a place that I embarrassingly never even heard of until I met Katie. 
She was homeschooled throughout her elementary and middle school years, and while that can feel isolating for some kids, it didn't for Katie, though she did have to cope with some medical scares at a young age. When she was around eight or nine, she went in for an ultrasound to see if she might have type 1 diabetes. She didn't, but there was something else going on, something they didn't catch. I know that they weren't looking at my uterus, obviously. They would have been looking at my kidneys and my pancreas and stuff. But um, it would have been visible in an ultrasound, probably at that age, that there was like some kind of defect and they didn't notice it. So that's kind of frustrating that I might have known earlier, but I didn't. While it wasn't completely obvious to Katie that there was something different about her reproductive system, there were hints here and there that something wasn't right, especially after she started menstruating. Started getting when I was 12. Um, my mom immediately made pant pads available. She had them around. I remember like preferring to use them for the first little while. And then when I tried tampons, it was like one of the times, it was probably when we were just gonna go swimming or something. And I thought, okay, well, I'll use a tampon. And no matter what I did, it always leaked. And I just figured maybe I didn't put it in right. Maybe I didn't put it back far enough. Is it the wrong like absorbency? I don't understand. So I, you know, I'd buy the multi-packs. I'd try all the different things and I couldn't figure out why on earth, no matter what I did, I always leaked through it. Even just inserting tampons was just like, I don't, something feels like it's tugging and I don't like it. Excessive menstrual bleeding can be a symptom of uterus didelphus, as well as excruciating cramping during periods, which Katie, unfortunately, knows a lot about. I used to miss school once a month, and I would be, like, I would collapse. I'd try to walk around my parents' house. I'd try to go get, like, Tylenol or something, and I'd collapse on the floor, and I, I couldn't move, and I'd be screaming and screaming. And my, my poor dad would just be looking at me like, what am I supposed to do? Do I take her to the hospital? She can't walk. <laughs> like, so mostly they just let me like cry myself to sleep until I fell asleep with Tylenol in me. When Katie was 14, her parents took her out of homeschooling and enrolled her in an actual high school, or senior high school as they say in Nova Scotia. Back then, she didn't have any experience with other people sexually because, you know, homeschooled. But she did have some experience exploring with herself. I mean, I masturbated occasionally, but it wasn't like all it wasn't like an overwhelming urge i guess do you mind if i ask if that involved fingering or, or rubbing uh yeah it would have been both yeah mostly rubbing though i think i've I, there's always been a little bit of discomfort associated with the the whole thing even though i never really realized why rubbing felt better and didn't have any kind of like twinges because it's um kind of like when your nose gets cracked at a joint <laughs> like if you catch the cartilage in the wrong way, although it is a very thin film of skin, like it's a, it's not very thick. So it, any tugging on it can be really uncomfortable, especially if there's not a lot of moisture. So how, how did that feel? You know, when you, like when you pull a tampon out and it's dry, amplified. <laughs> so it's just like, there's, there's this extra sensation that is just thoroughly unpleasant. When you fingered yourself, did it kind of shift to the other wall, like like you described earlier? Yeah, it's kind of like it shifts, but it also, um, like, it pulls a little bit. So it pulls against, like, the top and the bottom of the canal, and it, it just, it's, 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 sometimes it's quite minute, especially, like, if I'm, if I'm well aroused and everything is, like, going well, I don't notice as much, because there's enough lubrication and there's enough, like, um, the muscles are kind of relaxed. But especially if I was like alone, if a fingernail caught, like it would be quite uncomfortable. And so I definitely like I would avoid it when I 
could. And I definitely would just prefer to avoid it entirely. Katie's parents were pretty open-minded when it came to sexuality, so much so that her mother started stocking their bathrooms with condoms. Around the time when a boy started calling me in the evenings, because this was back in the landline days, um, they, my mom just said, they're there, we don't count them. If you need them, please use them. And that was it. So it was a, I'm sure they did count them, but they didn't want me to know and they weren't going to actually tell me. <laughs> so, so um, yeah. As non-judgmental as Katie's parents were, they still weren't huge fans of Katie's first boyfriend. Her boyfriend and first sexual partner was a bit of an ass and unfaithful. I was not actually his girlfriend. I was a hookup and they could tell that it kind of bothered me. So they talked to me about that, but they weren't upset with the fact that I was like having sex with him. They were upset about the fact that he was not a nice person. So it was dating and sex like with him, you know, him being your first partner. No, there was a lot of fooling around first. I didn't, like, we didn't jump right into it because like, he was moderately experienced. I had, obviously, he was my first, so I was none. I never noticed any real discomfort there, but, you know, we were both kind of young, so he was a bit younger, so probably not as much, <laughs> as much down there to deal with, so it didn't hurt. I don't remember it being so uncomfortable that I was not interested in doing it again. Like, it didn't cause any, like, avoidance. Katie's sex life after that was kind of boring, as she puts it. She didn't date that many people in high school and college, and anyone she would date, she'd end up being with them long term. So there weren't many hookups either. But there was some discomfort during sex with almost all of these guys. I remember like every now and then they'd accidentally hit it. I'd flinch and then I'd just get like, them to start again, but like slow. And if they go slow, then it naturally moves to one side. So as soon as they're on, the left or the right, then they're not going to catch it anymore because it's pushed to the side. And they, as long as they don't like pull all the way out to go back in, then it's fine. And I always thought that there was just like resistance. I thought that maybe there wasn't like enough lubrication or something. What did it feel like if you could describe it like that, that pain that you would feel if, if they pulled it? Kind of like a really, uh, like a tearing and pressure at the same time. So it, it kind of feels like something's going to rip. Kind of like when you bite your cheek or your lip and then it kind of like every time you hit it, it hurts again because it's the same kind of like very thin skin as inside your cheeks or something. But it goes away faster the more like aroused or lubricated everything is. So like if the muscles are relaxed, then it can kind of just go back. But if I'm feeling tense or like I'm not really ready for insertion anyway, it might take a bit longer to kind of feel like I'm ready for that to be attempted again. <laughs> This is a weird question, but do you think size had anything to do with the pain? Like maybe someone, like maybe you would feel more pain if you were with someone who was a little larger? Um, I, not really, no. I've never, I've never noticed any like extra pain or like with like a larger, uh, larger penis. The, the pain really does just come from a, a missing. There was some discomfort almost every time Katie had sex, but it wasn't enough for her to think that there was a larger issue at hand. She assumed this pain was normal and that all women experience it. That being said, she was a little confused by some interests women had that to her sounded painful as fuck. I remember my someone had told me about like those wee vibes, those like um, U-shaped things 
you insert one part and then the other part goes over it so that you have like a vibrator and a clitoris and something inside. Someone was just show, told me that they got one, they really liked it. And I saw it and I didn't know about the septum, but I was like, that doesn't look comfortable. And I knew that there was something about like having sensation right in the center that did not feel good. And I couldn't understand why they sold this because it looks terrible. <laughs> Shortly after college, Katie began dating the man who would ultimately become her husband. The two had gone to school together and even hooked up a bit their senior year, but it wasn't until they reconnected after graduation that they started seeing each other seriously. They got married when she was 27. It was around this time that they had the fingering mishap, you know, where her husband twisted his fingers inside Katie a little too aggressively. Katie's pap smear was coming up, so it was the perfect opportunity to find out what the hell was going on. She explained to the doctor what happened, so the doctor naturally used a speculum. She put in a speculum, and when she did, the septum moved to the side, so she didn't see anything. And I kept telling her, like, there is something. I felt it. It's there. Um, and eventually she, uh, she put the speculum in and extended it and then slowly uh, kind of turned it sideways and then pulled it out so that each side was pushing against, like, the um, lateral walls, not the top. It's, not, it's like an inch or so inside, I think, is where it starts. So when she pulled the speculum out slowly, suddenly it popped into the middle and she was able to see it. And uh, that was when I got to start taking two pap smears every time I go in because they have to do each cervix separately. Because pap smears are typically performed by general practitioners in Nova Scotia, Katie had to be referred to an actual OBGYN. I went in and took about 30 seconds to say, yep, you have two cervixes, I'll get an MRI. And then I got an MRI done and that confirmed double cervix, fully separate vaginal canals and the, um, the septate or didelphic, we're not sure, again, not sure, uterus issue. Katie broke down. She and her husband both wanted kids. And so hearing about her uterus didelphus to them sounded like having a child together would get complicated. They weren't wrong to be worried. Uterus didelphus can lead to some complications or abnormalities, like preterm labor or even miscarriages. There have also been rare cases of twins developing in each uterus. I went to an appointment with the doctor again to talk about the results of the MRI, and she said, there could be issues getting pregnant. We don't know. Just try. And she said that usually they make people wait six to eight months or something of trying just to, to try and then you know help if there, need, there needs to be help at that point. But she said, because we don't know, and because we do know there's this issue, uh, come in in three months if you haven't conceived. And my three-month appointment was two days after I found out I was pregnant, so it worked out well. (laughs) While Katie's pregnancy was, for the most part, normal, it was birth that worried her doctor. They made sure to keep monitoring her and discovered that the baby was developing in the uterus to her right. So my doctor had this concern that attempting birth could lead to the baby if any part of the baby hooked onto or the pressure could cause the uh, the septum to tear and if it tore away there was a, a real risk of like hemorrhaging and stuff um and we did, also didn't know if i went in late if i went into labor if the right cervix would um dilate or if they'd both try to dilate so we just didn't she just didn't want to risk it so she told me, like, we're scheduling a C-section. If you go into labor, drive directly to the hospital. Tell them to cut you open without me. Don't go into labor. <laughs> so uh, it was a bit nerve-wracking. The C-section was a success. 
She started getting her periods again not that long after, which isn't usually the case for women who've just given birth, especially if they're breastfeeding, which Katie was. Strangely enough though, the periods weren't as bad as they were before. And the period pain was, it took a couple months for it to resume being painful. So pregnancy seemed to be the cure, which was very strange. <laughs> and one of the reasons I was like, okay, I can be pregnant twice. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's just make this better. In 2019, about three years after their daughter's birth, Katie became pregnant again with her second child. Like with her first pregnancy, she had to have a C-section, which thankfully didn't have any complications. Her period cramping got better again after she gave birth to her son. Still, the excessive bleeding and discomfort during sex remained about the same. Lately, we use more like store-bought lubricant. Um, it used to be that I just kind of waited until I was like, there's more foreplay and arousal, but I've, I mean, <laughs> I've been breastfeeding my son since he was born and the hormones just lead to like less moisture. So we use more now, but there was a period in between where my daughter was weaned and we, I wasn't pregnant with my second yet where I didn't find I needed as much. So I feel like I probably lubricate more than most, but I know that it's also probably kind of temporary. As long as I'm well aroused, then I don't notice any discomfort because like if it's dry, there's more of a chance of like rubbing and pulling and catching. Whereas if there's lots of lubrication, then it's just kind of, it can glide and, and the septum can move to the side more easily. Katie knew deep down that lube, as magical as it can be, wasn't going to solve all of her problems. Her uterus didelphus was preventing her from doing things she wanted to experience with her children, like getting in a pool with them. There's been, I think, two occasions where I absolutely had to go swimming because I had a two-year-old daughter who did not understand, no, mom won't take you in the pool. Um, so I've had to specifically like use two tampons, angle them in sideways, and it's awful. And I, I don't wish that on anyone. Um, so I just avoid swimming now if I have, like if I'm on period, I don't swim. I, at one point I bought my, uh, I got a menstrual cup. I thought this will be great. I can't wait to not use tampons. This has to catch everything, right? And of course I'd put it in, it would go up one side and something would get around it because it wasn't able to catch everything. Going back to the pool experience, you said you used two tampons. I'm assuming they were both small, small tampons? Yeah, I'd use like the regular slim ones. And then I'd like angle one on each side. And then of course, like I'd have to take them out. So I would just remove them as soon as we were done swimming. Plus I could like feel them pushing against each other. And like if they, if one tugged a little bit, then it would move against the septum and it's just uncomfortable so I take them out as soon as we're done swimming and of course they're not full so then that's that dry like sandpapery sensation that's that I think most women are aware of and really hate. So yeah enough was enough. Katie started weighing her options which unfortunately there weren't a lot of in Nova Scotia. I had gone in for a consult at the local like women's hospital to ask about whether or not they can um, remove it. And it is possible. Um, I'm still debating it. And with COVID, unfortunately, there's no elective surgeries. So I can't just be like, could you schedule it? But I would like to have it removed at some point. I had wanted to donate if I, because since we'd septate, it's probably not a possibility. But if it was a full didelphic, like fully separate um, uterus, I had wanted to donate my uterus to someone. 
who might have, because I know there's some people who are born without them, or uh, trans women who might want to have one. But unfortunately, the doctor said that's probably not a possibility, at least not in Nova Scotia. So that went down the drain. But I would like to have the septum clipped out because most of all, I just want to stop using pads because I find them uncomfortable and wasteful. I really want to be able to use a menstrual cup, <laughs> but uh, it's going to be a while. When your doctor said that it was impossible to, to remove the uterus, do they mean not possible for you or just not, not possible ever? Uh, well, in Nova Scotia, they don't do donation. So it wouldn't make much sense to do it here because there's a good likelihood that by the time it was transported, that might not be useful. Um, I mean, they could still do a hysterectomy, but I don't really want a full hysterectomy. I just wanted to have one side taken away. But if there's septate, then they're still connected. So that's not an option. It would have to be if they were fully didelphic and <laughs> my doctors can't decide. I had um, some doctors doing ultrasounds with my second pregnancy who said that it looks septate. Some of them said didelphic, they couldn't make up their minds. Some of them said I should be fine to go ahead with the vaginal birth. And the other ones were like, no, no, definitely a cesarean. And so we went cesarean because I was not willing to risk dying on the table. So um, I don't know for sure what I've got, unfortunately. <laughs> so we don't know. But uh, I, I just want the septum to be gone because I feel like that would, even if there's some minimal scarring on the vaginal canal, then at least there wouldn't be that like tearing painful pressure. And I feel like that would be a really nice thing to live without. Treatments for uterus didelphis is a little complicated. Because this is such a rare anomaly, surgery to unite a double uterus or to remove a vaginal wall are rarely done. People with this condition also sometimes don't know they even have it in the first place, which is why it's important to ask questions when you sense something's not right. Also, and this is a given, we need doctors who listen to women's pain. So it's quite, I'm kind of glad you reached out because I think that there's probably a lot of women out there who have no idea that what they're going through isn't actually a normal thing or at least is medically explained and can be helped because I mean in this case there's not a lot you can do about it but the knowledge of it can at least let you mitigate some of the problems so you know you're not bleeding all over the place or you're aware of what to do during sex so that it is more pleasurable and it isn't just like painful <laughs> so it's it's not out there as far as I can tell especially from like in my teens it was not something that was even thought of like no doctor was like oh yeah you're in a lot of pain Katie thank you so much for speaking with me I really appreciate your time oh no problem it was really uh it was really fun <laughs> thank you for listening to how I fuck if you like our podcast give us a rating leave us a review tell a friend and follow subscribe if you haven't already also, if you have a micropenis, please hit us up. We want to speak with you. You can send us an email at hello at howifuckpodcast.com. That's how I fuck without the U, so F-C-K. You can also send us a DM on Instagram or Twitter. Our handles are howifuckpodcast, again, without the U, so F-C-K. We also have a website, howifuckpodcast.com, again, without the U. There you can find all of our episodes as well as show notes, photos, transcriptions, and other info. How I Fuck is produced by me, Natalie Rivera. I'm also the host and creator. Ben Quiles is our audio engineer. Cheyenne Lopez did copy and fact check. Original music by Miguel Gutierrez. You can find more of his music online under the artist's name, Nag. 
Gabriela Sanchez is our social media manager, and our sponsorship manager is Muna Kulabali. And special thanks to Tessa Peterson for her help on this episode. Until next time.